you're going northbound on Interstate 89 at exit 10, you're actually driving over the top of the engine room for Waterbury's last rope tow. When they built the interstate, they just bulldozed it and paved over it. You're listening to Happy Vermont, a podcast about places you love in the Green Mountain State. I'm Erica Housekeeper. 1934 was a big year in Vermont ski history. 90 years ago, the first rope tow opened in Woodstock. It's also when the Stowe Ski Patrol got its start, and when the Civilian Conservation Corps was busy building trails in Vermont. Around that time, the first purpose-cut ski trail was also completed on Mount Mansfield. Brian Lindner of Waterbury is a historian, ski patroller, and outdoor enthusiast. While hiking on Camel's Hump as a boy, he stumbled upon World War II plane wreckage, which sparked his lifelong interest in local history. Brian and I met a couple of weeks ago at National Life in Montpelier, where he works as a corporate historian. In this episode, Brian talks about the story of the B-24 bomber that crashed into Camel's Hump in 1944. We also talk about the early days of Stowe Mountain Resort and the spot along Interstate 89 that crosses over the engine room of an old ski hill rope tow. Here's Brian. January 8th, 1934, the Mount Mansfield Ski Club, which was a group of central Vermont ski enthusiasts, incorporated legally as the MMSC, Mount Mansfield Ski Club. And included in the Articles of Incorporation was one line that created the Mount Mansfield Ski Patrol, making the Mount Mansfield Ski Patrol the oldest ski patrol in the United States. What was the Mount Mansfield Ski Club? Was it like a group of people who skied together or traveled from somewhere else to ski at Mount Mansfield? Like, do you know anything about that? Yeah, the Mount Mansfield Ski Club was a group of Central Vermont ski enthusiasts, Charlie Lord, Bill Mason, Ab Coleman, a whole group of these guys, who their overwhelming hobby was hiking into the backcountry and up the mountains and skiing before anybody thought of it as a commercial sport. And... Uh, they realized eventually the potential at Stowe with Mount Mansfield for commercial development as a ski area. And that's why they got together and incorporated as the Mount Mansfield Ski Club or MMSC. So there was this one line in there that talked about the ski patrol. Yes. One of the articles of incorporation talked about, it doesn't say ski patrol, but it talks about establishing methods of safety and injury prevention on the mountain. Tell me about when the ski patrol actually started and when it started to be needed on the mountain. Well, there's almost no documentation that tells us a very clear beginning date for the concept of ski patrol in the U.S. However, there were two written accounts of a rescue on the toll road in the winter of 1933-34 where a person had injured their leg on the toll road late in the day and needed to be rescued and there was nobody to do it. Here they are promoting hiking up, skiing down, and no one thought, well, someone's going to get hurt, and they have to be rescued. So there's multiple versions of what exactly what happened and who the patient was. But nonetheless, in the winter of 33-34, a male was rescued using a piece of old corrugated roofing tin to drag him down the mountain in the darkness and off to the hospital in Morrisville. And that's really the beginning of people saying, if we're going to promote skiing here on Mount Mansfield and Stowe, we need to think about safety also. And who was Minnie Dole? Minnie Dole was an insurance executive from Connecticut, and he was like the 
other guys that I've mentioned in the Mount Mansfield Ski Club, early ski enthusiast. And he was a member of the Mount Mansfield Ski Patrol. And Minnie Dole, he did get injured. We definitely know that. In his autobiography, he talks about being on the toll road in 1936. So he's probably the second injury up there. And because of his injury and his involvement with the Eastern Amateur Ski Association, he and others realized we need an expert on ski injuries. And they looked at him and said, you're it. And he started a nationwide survey of skiing injuries. And that's how he gets so involved in ski patrolling in America. When he was surveying, were there lots of injuries happening at places around the country? I mean, I, I think there were more than people realized. They, they were starting to realize, particularly the Eastern Amateur Ski Association, they were starting to realize there are inherent risks in this sport and what really is going on with injuries. And that's the impetus for getting this survey started. How did you find this information out about the early days of the ski patrol? Uh, well, it's been a lifelong deal. Even as a child, I was interested in history. So over the years, I would just kind of zero in on this article, that story, this person, and just started to accumulate that knowledge over the years. Was it a visionary in terms of, was Minnie Dole or some of these other people in the ski club, were they kind of visionaries for a ski patrol? Like, was no one else talking about it or thinking about it? I don't think anybody else was really thinking about it until that first injury in the toll road in the winter 33-34. I think that's really the seed that made people realize, wow, there are risks in this sport and we're going to need to do something to mitigate those risks. Did Stowe influence, like did other ski patrols start becoming established because of what was happening on Matt Mansfield? Other ski patrols really weren't influenced because they didn't really exist until you get the national races at Stowe on the nosedive in 1936. Now, Minnie Dole had come up from Connecticut to organize the ski patrol response, the, the Mount Mansfield ski patrol response to those national races. And partway through, this, I think the second day of the races on a very, very cold day, Roger Langley, who was the president of the Eastern Amateur Ski Association, walked across the nosedive on a corner that still today is known as Shambles Corner. And he walked up to Minnie Dole and it said, this Mount Mansfield Ski Patrol organization, this is amazing. And would you take on the task of perhaps organizing something on a national basis based on what we're seeing here today? And in Minnie Dole's autobiography, he has, says something like, without really realizing what I was getting into, I agreed to it and we shook hands. And thus begins the National Ski Patrol system from that conversation. And there's a great photograph of them recreating that handshake on the nosedive in the 1960s. Oh, that's so great. And for anyone who doesn't know about nosedive, how would you describe that trail? It's probably, as it's named, it's pretty steep. <laughs> yes. The, the nosedive was cut in 1934, 1935 by the Civilian Conservation Corps. They didn't know what to call it. And initially, it was going to be the Barnes Camp Trail because it came down and ended at Barnes Camp at the base. And eventually, they came up with the idea and said, well, wait a minute. It starts at the nose on Mount Mansfield and drops down the fall line, very steep to start with. And let's call it the nosedive. And that's how the trail got started. Right. That's a good name. So you were a ski instructor at Stowe from 1973 to 1988, and then you joined the Stowe Ski Patrol. 
yes. in 88. And you're still on the ski patrol. I'm still on the patrol. Yep. I instructed uh, for all those years, loved being a ski instructor, but eventually realized ski instructors don't do much skiing. They do a lot of talking. And I already had my EMT certification and I said, well, I want to, I guess I want to switch over to the patrol because the patrollers do a lot more skiing. Right. And that's when I made the change and I'm still there. Tell me a little bit about what a ski patroller does. A ski patroller, it's tough to write a job description because we do everything. We help everybody. We ride the lifts first thing in the morning to make sure the lifts are all running correctly. We then ski down every trail. We are the first person down every trail. We're looking for any safety hazard, any marking, any sign. And we have to fix those before the public goes up. We have to go out during the day and check the trails and make sure all the paddings and the signs and everything are still in place. One of our former directors once said that uh, 1% of the time we do first aid, and that's probably true. The rest of the time we're out making sure that the public is as safe as they can be. Right. Has that gotten harder over the years? Like as people maybe want to ski on a trail that's roped off or they want to go out of bounds, do you have to keep more of an eye on that these days? Yeah, I think patrolling in general has gotten much more complicated these days. I mean, the medical care today is vastly beyond what it was in the early days. I mean, everybody today pretty much is an EMT or higher. And it's much more complicated than it ever used to be because we you have snowmaking hydrants now. We have so many things padded, so many things signed, so many things roped off that people shouldn't go in there for their own safety. And we have to police that. So, yeah, it's way more complex than it used to be. So you have skied at Stowe for many years, but your ties to Stowe go back even further. Can you tell me about that, your history with Stowe? I was very fortunate, along with my brother and sister, we actually grew up in the base lodge at Stowe. And when I say that, most people say, oh, your parents vacationed here a lot. No, I lived in the base lodge. Oh, so your parents came up to Stowe a lot to go skiing. I said, no, I lived in the base lodge. So the story is that Stowe is primarily located in the Mount Mansfield State Forest. My dad was the ranger there, hired by Perry Merrill in 1947. And the ranger lived, had an apartment in the base lodge. So that's where we grew up. And in the 1950s, with my parents, my sister, my brother and I all in one single bedroom, they realized they had to put an extension on the base lodge. And that's the northern end of the building that you see today. That's the ski patrol room today. That was built for my brother and I as our bedroom. That's incredible. That's such a great old building. Yeah, it, it's the base lodge today. It's the restaurant at the base. The sports shop is there. Ski patrol room is there. So it's it's a true base lodge. And it was built in 1940-41 and expanded many times since then. Yeah. I worked at Stowe in the early 90s for a season. And I remember during Apre ski, I saw Bill Murray walk through the lodge. And the whole lodge just went quiet. <laughs> <laughs> it was a thrill. Yes. Many celebrities have walked through the Mount Mansfield base lodge going all the way back to the 1940s. Yeah. Did you see a lot? I've seen a few up there. The one that people don't realize in today's world is there was a guy named Lowell Thomas, who in the 1920s, 30s, and even 40s was like the news broadcaster for the entire United States. Very, very famous and a huge promoter of early skiing. He used to do his weekly radio shows from Stowe on occasion. So Lowell Thomas was the first really big celebrity to be there routinely. Oh, that's so cool. That's neat. So 
2024, I can't, it's, I'm still getting used to saying that. It's actually a big year for skiing, an anniversary year for Vermont. You've got the Stowe Ski Patrol anniversary. And then it's also when 90 years from when the CCC started building trails. Yes, 1934, you're exactly right, begins a lot of Vermont ski history. Primary on that is going to be February 10th coming up. That's the day, well, you had a thing called the Bruce Trail, which was a CCC project. It was designated by Perry Merrill, Commissioner of Forest and Parks. It was assigned to Charlie Lord, a supervisor in the Civilian Conservation Corps, to cut a specific ski trail on Mount Mansfield. And they began November 1, 1933. And if you can imagine it, these guys cut a ski trail up Mount Mansfield, finishing the job on February 1st, 1934. It's the first purpose-cut ski trail in Vermont. And a fellow by the name of Paul Barkwin from White River was one of the CCC boys that cut that trail. And on February 1st, 1934, as soon as the trail was done that day, he put his skis on and skied down it, becoming the first person in Vermont to ski on a purpose-cut ski trail. And February 1st will be the anniversary of that. Ten days later, and the Bruce was the first ski race in Vermont. Oh, wow. What is the Bruce Trail like now? Backcountry skiers can still ski it. It's just like skiing a trail cut in 1933 by the CCC. Narrow, winding, twisty. Talk to me a little bit about the CCC and who Perry Merrill was. And, and I know you had mentioned to me before the per capita trail piece. Yes. There's a book coming out, I believe, next year on, on the history of the CCC in Vermont. And the author, Marty Podscotch, was he was educating me on some CCC history in Vermont. And that is that Perry Merrill had... Two things. He was a forestry major, and he had studied in Scandinavia, and he saw what the Scandinavians were doing with cutting ski trails. And then he became commissioner of forestry in Vermont, and he could see the CCC being created by President Roosevelt, and he had heard that they need, quote-unquote, shovel-ready projects. And Merrill jumped all over it, and he did land deals. He did all kinds of legal background things to get in place shovel-ready projects so that he could go to Robert Fetchner, the head of the CCC, and say, hey, come to Vermont. We have all of these things ready for the CCC to develop. And they did. And we ended up having the most CCC projects of any state and the most per capita funds from the CCC of any state. And that all goes back to Perry Merrill and his foresight. If you look at our state parks today, almost all those state parks begin as CCC projects. Wow. What does shovel-ready mean? Shovel-ready means all you need is the, the men and equipment to show up and you can start digging and cutting. Ready to go. And are there CCC trails all over Vermont? Do you know if it's concentrated in a certain area or...? I would say it's, it's pretty well scattered around the state. Most of today's ski areas... I think, have at least one trail probably cut by the CCC. Right. And then you mentioned the state parks. Yeah. The state park system in Vermont really was created by the Civilian Conservation Corps. And the first state park, Philo, it'll be 100 years. Mount Philo and Charlotte. It was 1924. So it's just interesting. Go. Yeah. That was a CCC project. They even built a fire tower there at one time. Wow. Yeah. A lot happened during those years. It's so interesting. 
Yes. Again, Marty Podscotch, the fellow that's writing a book on the history of the CCC in Vermont, pointed out to me last year that here is Vermont with the most CCC projects and the most CCC money, yet we're one of the very few states that doesn't have a CCC statue. And there is a standardized statue that most states, or at least many states, already have. And there's now a movement to get one of those statues here in Vermont. It comes with several restrictions, like it has to be at a CCC-related location. It has to be viewable by the public 365 days a year, those sort of things. But we're working through it, and it's, it, it, it will happen. We will have a CCC statue in Vermont. That's great. And are you pulling for Stowe to maybe... I think Stowe would be a great candidate, but there are other locations that would also work well yeah. that fit all the criteria. Right. Do you know what the statue looks like or how high it is or do you have any idea? It, yeah, it's it's roughly human-sized. It's a CCC. They call them boys. It's a CCC boy in his working overalls and a CCC hat, and I believe he's holding a shovel and perhaps an axe. I can't remember off the top of my head. You know, I was reading about you. I read a story that Mark Bushnell wrote about you and some other articles I came across. So you've been a historian for quite some time. And the first time you hiked up Camel's Hump, you were 11 years old. This is 1963. What did you find on Camel's Hump on that hike? Well, I'm not sure if I was 11 or 12. I, I waver back and forth. But around that age, yes, a friend of mine took me up Camel's Hump. And as we hiked up, we came across some wreckage from the Army Air Force bomber that crashed there in 1944. And I was just fascinated by this wreckage. There was one big giant wing laying right in the middle of a trail. So when I went home and asked my parents about it, they didn't know anything about it. So in school, the next day, I asked my teachers. They didn't know anything about it. And it's like, wow, there's this huge bomber that crashed on Camel's Hump, and nobody knows about it. So as a kid, I did started doing a little schoolboy research, and it actually came to be something that I have continued throughout my entire life. I worked on some research for it yesterday, as a matter of fact, and I'm 71 years old now. But new information about that bomber crash continually comes to light. I am working on writing a book about it now. I think it's one of the most incredible aviation disasters ever, and it happened right here in Vermont. Right. And the bomber crashed just kind of right at the summit on the south side. Is that right? It was actually on the west side of the mountain, and it cartwheeled around to the south face. Uh, if you can imagine this bomber, a 32-ton bomber, 110-foot wingspan, literally cartwheeling across the face of Camel's Hump. And it, it dropped wreckage all for probably a half a mile. And some of it is still there in place uh, for people to hike up and see. Wow. Did you think about that a lot as a boy, you know, when you were 11 or 12? Like, was it something that it stayed with you, but did you think about it a lot? As a kid, I eventually learned the basic parts of the story from old newspaper articles that people had saved. I never knew the depth that went with that story because it's a pretty incredible depth. Like, the first American in World War II to lose both arms and both legs through amputation was the sole survivor of the crew. And he went on to have an amazing career as an attorney. But I didn't think much about it, per se, until July 4th, 1976, the Bicentennial of America. I was hiking up there, and someone had found the remains of the co-pilot seat, dragged it out, and dumped it in the middle of the trail. And that inspired me on that day, at that time, to say, 
I should really research this story. And I intensely researched it, tracking down all the people that were there, the survivor, relatives of the guys, the nine men that were killed, and started accumulating information. And the more you researched it, the more intriguing it became. And then starting in 1978 or so, I didn't actively research, but then information started to find me. People would call up and say, I've got this piece, or I heard this story. So it's been continual uh, in all these decades. That's incredible. On that day in 1976, on the 4th of July. But I had never seen the remains of the co-pilot's seat, and someone found it somewhere, dragged it onto the trail, and just dumped it in the middle of the trail. And you just happened upon it. I just happened on it that day. Just I had hiked up and looked at some other stuff, and I was on my way down and, and saw that. And I said, wow. And that was the inspiration. It was like the universe was trying yeah. to tell you something. Somebody was trying to tell me something, yes. <laughs> Definitely. Do you go up to Camel's Hump a lot? Like after that discovery, if you will, in 76, like were you up and down the mountain a lot? Well, it's kind of interesting. I really don't hike up there a lot anymore unless we're up there to rescue somebody. And I'm up there quite frequently doing that. In fact, the Waterbury Backcountry Rescue Team is now... We've done 263 rescues, and proportionally, the vast bulk of them have been up on Camel's Home. Wow. And are those usually summer rescues or winter? Or? The bulk of them come in the fall, mm-hmm. and almost all of them are at nighttime. We get the call right at sunset, and then we spend our nights up there rescuing these folks to bring them down. Do you tell them the story about the bomber? Some of them I have, yes. I mean, it depends on what the situation is, but yeah, some people I've shared it with. That's great. Would you say in 76, that was, was that your moment? Like when you're like, I mean, you've worked professionally in in the corporate world here. Have you, but at that moment where you're like, I want to be a historian, did you call yourself a historian back then? No, I definitely didn't call myself as a historian. I was an amateur at that point. I was, I graduated from college, but researching this crash turned me into a historian. I learned how to do research, how to find archives, how to do interviews, how to look up old articles. That turned me into a historian that then blossomed out into my other, quote-unquote, careers. And I became a lifelong historian at that point. Do you mostly research around, like, the Stowe-Waterbury area, Camel's Hump? Like, is that kind of your area, your specialty? Well, archivists in Vermont familiar with me will all tell you that uh, I'm limited mostly to doom and gloom, with disasters and crashes and wrecks and that sort of thing. People that have lost their lives, unfortunately, is kind of a specialty, but I've learned how to research those stories and share them with the families because Camel's Hump is a perfect example. Nine men were killed up there, and their families were never told what happened until I came along. All they knew is they lost their husband, son, brother, or whatever in a plane crash in Vermont. And these people thirsted for information, like, what happened? And I was able to share that with them, including two of the mothers. If you can imagine, they had lived decades wondering, what happened to my son? So that became my specialty is doom and gloom. Did you track the families down or did they find you? I tracked all the families down, yes. I was in contact with all nine families and I tracked down the sole survivor who he was wonderful. Jimmy Wilson was 18 at the time this happened, lost parts of both arms, both legs, never slowed the man down for a moment. He was amazing, became an attorney. And to show you the kind of attorney he was, his son wrote an article about him once, talked about how his dad at a jury trial 
when he, in closing arguments, would kind of saunter up in front of the jury and very delicately with his artificial hand, pluck his handkerchief out of his coat pocket, dab his chin with it, and then put it back in. And Jeff, the son, said at that point, my father had the jury's complete attention. But that's an insight to Jimmy Wilson's character. Uh, amazing individual. Where did Jimmy live? Jimmy, at the time he went into the Army Air Force, it was from Florida. And after all the amputations, his doctors recommended he find a cooler, colder climate because he had so little skin surface to keep him cool. And that's how he ended up in Denver. And that's where he lived. After the crash, he settled in Denver and lived there until he eventually died. When did you meet Jimmy? I met Jimmy in 1977, I think it was. He happened to be going through uh, Burlington, just coincidentally, when I was doing the bulk of my research, and he said, hey, let's have lunch together. So I met him in downtown Burlington. We had a great lunch, and we maintained contact until 2001 when he passed away. When you were reaching out to the families, the mothers, the wives, what was that like for you? I mean, that's got to be a hard thing to contact someone and say, I, I have the full story. Well, I, in those days, I couldn't afford long-distance phone calls, so uh, I did all my contacts by letter, and I was very careful to outline in each letter to, when I was searching for the families, who I was, what I was doing, what I was up to, and eight of the families responded very quickly, or I shouldn't say seven of the families responded very quickly, that they were extremely excited, and basically they all said, what happened? What happened? And please, research it. One of the families, I got a phone call instead, and he said, I'm a brother. Who are you? What do you want? And he was very suspicious. And after that conversation, he said, boy, what can we do to help? Because what happened to my brother? We want to know. And thus began a relationship with the families. The mothers were incredible. You think World War II was over? Interview a mother of someone, a mother who lost a son in World War II. That war didn't end until that generation passed on themselves. Those mothers. At 1989, we put up a monument on Camel's Hump in honor of the crew. Two of the mothers were there, and their daughters later told me that for the first time ever, mom is at peace. Uh, she knows what happens, and she sees her son honored. It was it was pretty incredible. What do you get? out of being a historian? Like, what does it do for you? Being a historian for me is making the discovery. It's like going to the flea market and looking at a bunch of old paintings and realizing, hey, that's a Rembrandt. To me, it's like going into an old mine and finding a nugget of gold. When I'm doing research, it's those little historical nuggets that nobody else remembers, nobody else has really documented well that I discovered. And I said, wow, this is cool. What a story. And from that, I've developed all kinds of various stories. Cold cases in Vermont, for example, that no one remembers today, but were never solved. And I root around and dig into those. And sometimes you can come up with some pretty amazing info, because when people die, their diaries end up in historical societies, and you can read it, what they knew about the murder or the disappearance or something. So it's finding those nuggets that keeps me going. And the bomber crash, I mean, that's a tough one to top, but have what's another little nugget of history you've maybe uncovered that was really surprising? Well, one of them that I discovered, Lieutenant Bill Ricker. Most Central Vermonters know all about radio station WDEV in Waterbury. 
And I grew up along with everybody else thinking that Lloyd Squire had always owned it. It was Lloyd Squire, Lloyd Squire. Well, it turns out he had a, an equal partner, a guy named Bill Ricker. Bill Ricker and Lloyd Squire owned WDEV. They owned the Waterbury Record newspaper. And I found out Bill Ricker vanished in World War II. So I decided to research that story. And I ended up finding out so much that nobody knew before by going to the National Archives and pulling files. In fact, I just pulled more files on Bill Ricker last November down to National Archives. He led a patrol February 9th, 1945 and vanished. Well, it turns out on this patrol, they were ambushed. Several members of the patrol were killed. Bill Ricker was wounded in the abdomen, and a family dragged him into their house in Germany, took care of him until he died the next day, and then they were terrified to have a dead American in their house. So they took him out in the backyard and buried him under their own apple tree. No marker on the grave or anything, because the Americans they knew were advancing coming through this town, and they didn't want to be caught with a dead American. And it took five years before the Americans exhumed the body and matched it up with a file on a missing soldier and said, well, those are the remains of Bill Ricker. He is today buried here in Montpelier in the Greenmont Cemetery. You can see his headstone from Interstate 89. And it was just really exciting to research his story and discover what really happened to Bill Ricker and share it with his family. And in it, I was helped by a Dutch researcher and a Belgian researcher who went right into that town and started doing interviews to help me out. And it was pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. What made you research that? I researched the Bill Ricker story as part of a project I was doing for the Waterbury Historical Society to document all the men that were killed in World War II that were from Waterbury. And there's some pretty amazing stories there, too. Oh, I can imagine. Any nugget of history that about Stowe or Waterbury you can think of that? There's a nugget of Waterbury history that I am completely fascinated by, and that is our ski areas in Waterbury. We preceded Stowe with ski areas. And depending on how you define ski area, we've had like five or six in Waterbury. The second one is when you get on Interstate 89 in Waterbury and you're headed south towards Montpelier, you go over the long bridges that go over the top of Stowe Street. At the end of that bridge in Interstate 89, today is a long ledge wall that was cut when Interstate 89 was built. Few people realize that a ski area called Pinnacle Park Ski Land actually had a ski lift, a rope tow, that began in the valley on the left as you're going south and ended on the peak of the hill to your right. They even had night skiing there. The famous instructor at Stowe, Sepp Rush, used to teach lessons there. And today there's no hint of it. And then our final ski area was going the opposite way, going northbound in Interstate 89, pretty much at the end of the entrance ramp. Exit 10 going north was our final ski area that was there during the Korean War. That was another rope tow. And the engine house for it and the engine are buried underneath the northbound lane of Interstate 89 today. Oh, my gosh. And these ski areas, they predated – like how old do you th were these ski areas? When did they – The first one in Waterbury was 1938. It was a disaster. It was moved to Pinnacle Park Ski Land. They opened it in the winter of 39. 
but we had ski trails cut uh, behind what it, what used to be Green Mountain Coffee Roasters. There was a ski trail cut there in the early 1930s that people would hike up and ski down. Oh, my gosh. And tell me again what's under the northbound lane. Yes. If you're going northbound on Interstate 89 at exit 10, you're actually driving over the top of the engine room for Waterbury's last rope tow. Oh, that's so when they great. built the interstate, they just bulldozed it and paved over it. That's incredible. Do people remember those places? Like, is it? There are still some old timers around that vaguely remember those ski areas. Most of them have passed away, but thankfully I was able to get to them while they still had real memories of skiing there. Unfortunately, nobody had photos of them. I only have like three or four photos of those ski areas. Their photos are really rare. Yeah. And you have them, or does the Historical Society have them? The, the Historical Society yeah. and I both have That's them. We, we have copies both places. What year did Stowe open? Stowe officially opened in February 1936 with the first uphill traffic. That was a rope tow at the toll house. And when you were growing up, where did you ski? Did you ski at Stowe? I always skied at Stowe because you were right kids there. living in the baseline, we didn't even need passes because all the ticket takers knew us. So we'd come home from school and put on our boots and skis and go up for one last run at the end of the day. So yeah, I've always skied at Stowe. Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. You can find more stories, podcast episodes, and event listings on my website, happyvermont.com. To help support Happy Vermont, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or sign up to become a Patreon member. You can also email me at hello at happyvermont.com. Thanks again for listening. Take care and talk to you soon.